Hey everybody, this is Adam, host of the podcast you're about to listen to. Don't skip this, it's not an ad, just dropping in to let you know that this episode was originally recorded and released as a subscriber-only bonus episode back in June of 2022, so just a little over a year ago, if you're keeping score at home. I'm putting this one out publicly now for a few reasons. For one, we're taking the week off from recording, so there's that. But also, this episode not only ties into some stuff we've talked about recently, but also it has some ties to an upcoming thing we're doing. The episode you're about to listen to is about a guy named Milton William Cooper, who is one of the godfathers of the conspiracy theory movement in this country. He is the author of a seminal conspiracy theory book, called Behold a Pale Horse. You might recall that we did a couple of free episodes about that book, also in June of 2022. This bonus episode was part of that series, but it focuses more on the man who wrote the book as opposed to the book itself. If you recall on last week's episode, we teased that we'd be doing a new book club series. Well, next week's episode will be the first of those. We're reading a book called The Keepers, An Alien Message for the Human Race, written by a guy named Jim Sparks. You should read it too, and then listen to us talk about it next week. The book is a little hard to find, but if nothing else, Barnes & Noble has the ebook version for real cheap. But also, this episode ties into a thing we just talked about, which is Stephen Greer and his belief that if you just concentrate hard enough, you can compel aliens to visit you. That sounds like a recent development in the alien debate, but as you'll note when you listen to this episode, that divide in the alien community has existed at least since Milton William Cooper released Behold a Pale Horse, and that was in 1991. Around the 36-minute mark of this episode, the subject turns to dark side versus light side aliens. And it will all sound super familiar, provided you listened to the recent Stephen Greer episode with Connor McSpadden. So, hey, enjoy this throwback episode that is available publicly for the first time. And come back next week to hear us talk about The Keepers, an alien message for the human race. And thanks. We love you. Let's get to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, ooh, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host. I am going it alone. Not just for this episode, but for the next episode, maybe the next two or three episodes. We're talking about a couple of subjects that are probably as responsible for the existence of this podcast as anything else. That would be the 1991 conspiracy theory book, Behold a Pale Horse, and the man who wrote it. Milton William Cooper. It is impossible to overstate how important this book is when it comes to conspiracy theorist types. It is foundational 
stuff. A lot of conspiracy theory greatest hits first gained widespread attention with this book. The New World Order, secret societies, the CIA selling drugs, AIDS as a bioweapon, the gang's all here. Even if not everything covered in the book originated with the book, this is without a doubt where a whole lot of people first read about some of history's most enduring conspiracy theories. Listen to everyone, read everything, believe nothing until you yourself can prove it with your own research. That's a quote. And it sounds like a quote from your QAnon-loving uncle, because that is definitely something that he would say to you. But it's also a quote from Milton William Cooper, the author of Behold a Pale Horse. He is the godfather of the do-your-own-research movement, among other things. One of the interesting aspects of Behold a Pale Horse is that it achieved its popularity, at least in part, by being one of the most popular prison books of all time. You might be wondering, what is a prison book? Let me see if I can explain it. It's a book everyone reads when they go to prison. That was actually easier to explain than I built it up to be. But I've never been to prison, so my introduction to the book happened a different way, and that was by listening to a whole bunch of mid-90s rap music. You see, right around the time gangster rap was murdering off the last vestiges of conscious rap, and the government was murdering off Tupac and Biggie. Around that same time, a lot of mainstream rappers suddenly became super duper interested in and or scared of the New World Order conspiracy. And we all know now that a small group of elites secretly run the world and are conspiring to enslave us all through the establishment of a one-world government. That's the New World Order conspiracy in elevator pitch form. If you're listening to this podcast, there's no way you're not familiar with it by now. George H.W. Bush very notoriously used the phrase in a speech right around the time Behold a Pale Horse was released, which was 1991 again. And I'm sure that was just a total coincidence and not Bush's CIA ass poking the bear in some way. Whatever the case... I'm fairly certain the first time I heard the phrase New World Order in a rap song was the 1995 Goody Mob single, Cell Therapy. Or along those same lines, it also comes up a bunch on the second Outkast album, which is called AT Aliens, which was released the following year. And it's not an exaggeration to say this might be the most referenced book in rap music history. It's definitely the most referenced conspiracy theory book, which I'm sure at least has a little to do with how cool the title is. The title comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 8, in which John is witness to the opening of the seven seals. I'm sure I didn't need to tell any of you that. Here's the quote. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. Johnny Cash also reads that passage in the song When the Man Comes Around. Completely unrelated. The title of the first chapter of this book, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, is also the title of an album by Wu-Tang affiliates Kill Our Army. And the book gets all this love from the hip-hop community still to this day, despite the book's author being a white dude who lived on top of a mountain in Arizona, who the 
Anti-Defamation League described as a right-wing militia leader. And I'm not sure that's completely accurate. But either way, it makes sense that the hip-hop community would rally around this book. Especially when you take into account that a lot of the theories in it involve the government targeting black people specifically. So a book like this coming from someone who was former military intelligence just kind of confirmed a lot of suspicions a lot of people had about the government before they even read the book. And also, to his credit, Bill Cooper was kind of like Cristal Champagne in reverse when it came to the rap music industry embracing his book. Whereas the owner of Cristal Champagne encouraged the rap stars who were shouting out his product to consider shouting out Krug or Dom Perignon instead, Bill Cooper was psyched when he was told rap music had embraced his book. Now, how hearing those rap lyrics about the New World Order led me to knowing which conspiracy theory books to buy without the help of the internet is beyond me. However it happened, I landed on four books that served as my introduction to conspiracy theories in general. Confusingly, two of them are called The New World Order. One is written by a guy named A. Ralph Epperson, and the other is, of course, written by evangelical Christian icon Pat Robertson. To add to the confusion, there's a third nonfiction book called The New World Order, but it was written by fiction writer H.G. Wells, so people assume it's fiction also. But no. It's about how he thinks the only way the world is going to thrive and prosper is if we do install a one-world government. The Epperson and Robertson books are about how that is a bad thing that we should not do. But also, if we're going in chronological order, that third New World Order book by H.G. Wells is actually the first New World Order book. And in either case, it's not the third of the four books I mentioned. I trust you're all still with me. The third book that formed my introduction to conspiracy theories is called The Unseen Hand, An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. Appropriately enough, that's a 1985 book also written by A. Ralph Epperson. I haven't interacted with either of his books since reading them way back then, but I remember thinking The Unseen Hand was especially interesting, and the Amazon reviews certainly seem to agree, so maybe I'll read it again. But for now, the fourth of those conspiracy books that I was somehow compelled to purchase. Behold a pale horse. That's what we're going to focus on for the next few episodes. Because again, of all those books, Behold a Pale Horse is far and away the most iconic and best-selling. It had an initial press run of 3,500 copies, but as of 2017, it was closing in on 300,000 copies sold. And that's a lot for a book, especially a book like this. And that is according to the 2018 book Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper. The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America by Mark Jacobson. On this first episode, I'm going to focus more on the man behind the book, Behold a Pale Horse, as opposed to the book itself. And as such, Mark Jacobson's book is probably your best resource if you want way, way, way more information about what we're talking about today, which again is Bill Cooper outside of what you'd learn just reading Behold a Pale Horse. If you're still hungry for more after that, for one thing, I've compiled about 10 pages of notes for a book that's about 400 pages. So you can certainly go read Mark Jacobson's book if you want to know more about Bill Cooper. If you're still hungry after that, you can also check out Beyond the Pale Horse, The Strange Case of Milton William Cooper by Gray Barker and Andrew Colvin. I'll tell you up front, those are two radically different books. Pale Horse Rider is a fairly objective work written by a journalist. The Strange Case of Milton William Cooper is written by a friend of Cooper's who, despite opening the book saying he didn't agree with everything Cooper had to say, clearly 
agreed with everything Cooper had to say and treated the subject like he was talking about some kind of messiah. Bill Cooper is not a messiah. He's not a prophet. He is just a very, very complicated man who I don't think I trust anymore. I definitely did when I first read Behold a Pale Horse back in the mid-90s. But there is a lot of context missing if you form your opinion about Bill Cooper just by reading that one book. So let's talk about him. Again, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is also covered in the book Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America by Mark Jacobson. We'll link to it in the show notes. Give it a read. Why don't you? So Bill Cooper, he was born May 6, 1943. His dad was in the military. He eventually joined the military as well. The military stuff will be very important later, but we can gloss over it for now. The childhood and upbringing stuff is always my least favorite part of any biography. So I'm going to skip it. Go read the book if you want to know. One thing you definitely won't read about Bill Cooper in Behold a Pale Horse is that he famously kind of predicted 9-11 after watching a CNN interview with Osama bin Laden in July 2001. Here's a quote. Supposedly, a CNN reporter found Osama bin Laden, took a television camera crew with him, and interviewed him and his top leadership, lieutenants, and his colonels, and generals in their hideout. Now, don't you think that's kind of strange, folks? Because the largest intelligence apparatus in the world, with the biggest budget in the history of the world, has been looking for Osama bin Laden for years and years and years and can't find him. But some doofus jerk-off reporter with his little camera crew waltzes right into his secret hideout and interviews him. And you know what? That does sound strange when he puts it that way. But also there's more. Here's another quote. I'm telling you to be prepared for a major attack. Something terrible is going to happen in this country, and whatever is going to happen, they're going to blame on Osama bin Laden. Don't you even believe it? End quote. And there's more. Here's another quote. Within weeks, the Congress will pass draconian legislation aimed at restricting the rights of American citizens. You're going to have surveillance cameras on every street corner. You think your phones are being tapped now? Just wait. No one is going to gain from this except a very small group of people. Everyone else will lose. No one will lose more than the American people. From now on, freedom will be whatever the law allows you to do. End quote. That's all pretty chilling because he said all that in July of 2001. And in September of 2001, if you recall, a lot of that happened. But there's even more because he also made another prediction well before that 9-11 prediction. Here's that quote. They're going to kill me, ladies and gentlemen. They're going to come up here in the middle of the night and shoot me dead right on my doorstep. And guess what? A couple months after 9-11, that happened too. Bill Cooper was indeed killed in a shootout with police. But we'll talk about that more later. For now, let's talk about another thing he is alleged to have predicted which is the rise of a Trump-like leader. In a 1992 CNN interview, he said it was impossible for another Abraham Lincoln to be elected president of the United States and that the only way to get the people in office now out of office was to stop voting for them, which that's true. He also added, kick all the members of the secret societies out of the bureaucracy. Try them for treason because that's what they are traitors. And how are we supposed to do all that? Elect a president who had never served in government before. So that all sounds shockingly similar to how people feel about Trump and what he was supposed to have accomplished by becoming president, but very much did not. But 
Bill Cooper's misgivings about the government obviously go way back before 9-11. After all, Behold a Pale Horse came out 10 years prior to that. But he says his disillusionment with the government started back when he was serving in the Navy. He worked on the briefing team for a guy named Admiral Bernard A. Clary, Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And this job came with an upgraded security clearance that he claims allowed him to view all sorts of highly sensitive material. By the way, his security clearance level in the military? Q, because of course it was Q. Anyway, his issues started with seeing Nixon give a speech about how we were conducting no bombing raids in North Vietnam, Cambodia, or Laos, and then five minutes later seeing intelligence reports about bombing missions over those exact areas. But he also claimed to have seen a whole bunch of other stuff in Admiral Clary's files as well, like documents proving that the U.S. government was directly involved in the assassination of JFK. This is where he says he first learned of a theory that would define him in his early days on the conspiracy theorist scene. That theory being that JFK was actually killed by his limo driver, Secret Service Agent William Greer, who shot him with a shellfish toxin pellet gun. Cooper even sold his own version of the Sapruder film that highlighted the moment he claimed you could see Greer turn around and shoot Kennedy. Don't watch the president, watch the driver. And here's the thing, if you watch the video and keep your eye on the driver, there is a point when all the shooting's happening where the driver turns around, but also there's a whole bunch of shooting happening, and the person getting hit is behind him. So you're probably going to turn around to check that out. I don't know if that means he killed Kennedy. William Cooper seemed to think it did. But that whole thing was still a decade or two down the road in Bill Cooper's life. Not the Kennedy assassination. That obviously happened in the early 60s. But him caring about it in a public way would take a while. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Between seeing that stockpile of secrets in Admiral Clary's office and riding Behold a Pale Horse, a whole bunch of other things happen. Like Bill Cooper serving in Vietnam, which unsurprisingly did nothing to improve his personal relationship with the U.S. government, which was already pretty badly strained on account of him finding out they off JFK with lobster bullets. After he got back from Vietnam, He was so fed up with the government, he decided to reach out to a reporter, Watergate style, about what he'd learned about the Kennedy assassination. Except instead of that leading to his secret knowledge becoming national news, Cooper claims it led to a black limousine running him off the road while he was riding his motorcycle in Oakland. To hear him tell it, he was riding along, minding his own business, when a black Cadillac limo started tailgating him. Shortly thereafter, the limo moved to the left lane 
like it was going to pass, and then veered to the right, sending Cooper and his motorcycle over a guardrail and down the bottom of an incline. Here's a quote. Two men got out and climbed down to where I lay covered in blood. One bent down and felt for my carotid pulse. The other asked if I was dead. The nearest man said no, but he will be. Except here's the thing. He didn't die. He survived. But then almost the exact same thing happened a month later. Same limo and everything. This time it just worked a little better. And Cooper mangled his leg to the point that it was partially amputated. And he walked with a prosthetic from then on. He claims that after this accident, while hospitalized, he awoke to find two men standing over his bedside. Here's a quote. They only wanted to know if I would shut up or if the next time should be final. I told them that I would be a very good little boy and that they needn't worry about me anymore. End quote. He says he knew he was lying, but what are you going to say? in that situation. Either say no, you're not going to talk anymore, or you get smothered with a pillow. Seems like an easy choice. But on the bright side, it was in that hospital bed where Bill Cooper met the future Mrs. Bill Cooper, or like the fourth future Mrs. Bill Cooper. According to Pale Horse Rider, no one is quite sure how many times Bill Cooper's been married. His FBI file includes a quote from his dad saying his son had been married or engaged at least nine times. But this all happened around 1976, the incident where he gets run off the road, allegedly, for trying to report what he knew about the Kennedy assassination. It was late that year when he married Janice Pell, who was working as his nurse when he was in the hospital after that incident. Here's a quote from her. I had no idea what I was getting into. One minute, he'd be the sweetest, warmest guy. Then he'd change, start yelling at me for no reason. It was like living with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. End quote. Cooper was also a lifelong heavy drinker, which, as you'd expect, led to lots of problems in his relationships, romantic and otherwise. Here's another quote from Janice Pell. He'd get abusive, mentally and, after a while, physically. I tried to make excuses for him. The war his leg. He always told me the men in the car would come back and finish the job. That was what kept him on edge, he said. I was afraid of him. He was this huge man, really strong, like a giant bear. If something happened, he always came back and apologized. He'd cry and say he didn't know what got into him. He didn't even remember what happened. End quote. So Bill Cooper sounds like a whole lot of person to deal with. At one point, he was diagnosed with PTSD, which at the time was called post-traumatic delayed stress syndrome, and he was admitted for extended inpatient stays at Long Beach Veterans Administration Medical Center from July 7th to September 25th, 1981, and again from March 8th to April 28th, 1982. So those weren't short stays. One of the watershed moments in Bill Cooper's life happened on December 11th, 1984. That's when a package postmarked from Albuquerque, New Mexico, arrived in the North Hollywood mailbox of documentary filmmaker Jamie Shandera. The package contained a mostly blank roll of 35mm film, except there were eight frames of that film. Each frame had one page of what would eventually make up one of the most notorious discoveries of the UFO truther movement, the Majestic 12 document. This was a topsy memo, allegedly, from President Truman informing President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower about the existence of a governmental program dealing with UFOs. The name comes from a quote from Truman in that memo where he says, Hereafter, this matter shall be referred to only as Operation Majestic 12. End quote. Can you imagine finding something like that out by way of a memo? You're just alone at your desk and you read, By the way, we have been in contact with UFOs and aliens for quite a while. 
Enjoy your presidency. Shortly after Jamie Shandera received the Majestic 12 document, a story about it was published in an L.A. publication called UFO Magazine, and that set Cooper off. He said he could barely believe his eyes because he'd already read about all that in a treasure trove of documents in Admiral Clary's office. Where else? Getting run off the road by the men in black had kept him quiet for 16 years. But upon reading this article, Bill Cooper, quote, decided to enter the arena, end quote. And as luck would have it, this revelation happened at a point in history when going public with secret knowledge was becoming easier than ever, thanks to something called the internet. Ever heard of it? In the summer of 1988, Cooper started posting on a dawn of the internet message board called Paranet, which was founded by a ufologist named Jim Spicer. Is that how we're pronouncing that? Ufologist? At one point, Bill Cooper has a falling out with the UFO community, and he started referring to them as ufologists, which that's very funny, but doesn't tell me at all how I'm supposed to be pronouncing this word. I'm going ufologist. You'll be fine. Anyway, his first post on Paranet in 1988 detailed an incident he claimed to have witnessed while on board the submarine USS Tyru in 1966, where he and his fellow crew members saw, quote, a metal craft larger than a football field tumble from the clouds into the ocean, end quote. They also said it dipped into the water, came back out, did that a couple more times, and then shot up into the sky and disappeared into the clouds. Here's another quote. There was no doubt as to what we had seen. It was a metal craft with machinery on and around the outside of it. It appeared to have windows or lenses placed around its perimeter. It made no noise that we could hear. It did not disturb the sub's electrical systems, nor did it affect the gyro compass. It had the shape and form of a saucer with a bowl inverted in the saucer, and it was huge. I will never forget it as long as I live. This is the first time I have ever mentioned it since the moment that the captain told me that it was classified. End quote. He says after that he was approached by a superior who told him to keep quiet about what he'd seen for the sake of his career. So that was Milton William Cooper's opening salvo in the then burgeoning conspiracy theory media industry. Things got really interesting for Bill Cooper in the conspiracy theory space. A few days after that post, when on August 25th, 1988, another entry went up on the Paranet message board. It was called the John Lear Hypothesis, and as the title implies, it was written by a guy named John Lear. You might be asking, Lear? Like the Lear jet? And yes, just like the jet. But that was his dad, William Lear, who also founded Motorola. But John Lear wasn't burdened with things like needing to work. So he made his name mostly by becoming a pilot and breaking a bunch of speed records. By the time he was 25, he held 17 separate airspeed records. Oh, and he also flew for the CIA a whole bunch, specifically for their Air America and Continental Air Services fleets from 1966 to 1973. We mention the documentary Mirage Men all the time on this pod. That's a documentary about a military guy named Richard Doty, whose main job was to supply people who'd found real government secrets and made them public with additional fake information that the feds could use to discredit that person when they inevitably make that fake information public as well. And I think there's a pretty good chance that was happening here. A few days after Bill Cooper surfaces on the Paranet board to assert his credentials as a military man 
with insider knowledge about UFOs, in swoops former CIA man with an even more fantastical tale of UFO shenanigans. According to the Lear hypothesis, quote, the United States government has been in business with little gray extraterrestrials for about 20 years. Those we trust with our lives have sold us out to aliens from another world. It's a very complicated theory that we've talked about on the show. It also forms the basis of the second half of the most recent season of American Horror Story. You just go watch that if you want. I thought it was very good. But the short version is that at some point, President Eisenhower struck a deal with aliens who were already living on Earth, where they would give us access to alien technology in exchange for us letting them kidnap humans to use for experimentation purposes. More than 20,000 children a year were being abducted by the 1960s on account of this arrangement, according to Lear's hypothesis. Also, pause for a second, calling it a hypothesis seems weird, right? This isn't really the kind of thing you'd go public with before having some pretty solid evidence. Except, yeah, you would if you're John Lear. On several occasions, he made it clear that everything he was saying could be incorrect. It's just a hypothesis. Which, no, it's not. It's not a hypothesis. But I'm not here to argue the definition of words. The author of Pale Horse Rider actually interviewed John Lear and got this quote out of him among others. Everything I think is just so much bullshit, but it is bullshit I happen to believe in, at least today, end quote. So when you couple his CIA background with the fact that he is just an admitted liar, you'd have every reason in the world to suspect John Lear was not on the up and up. But nevertheless, his hypothesis struck a chord with Bill Cooper. Here's a quote again from John Lear and the Pale Horse Rider book. Except then I heard there was this guy on Paranet who was supporting what I said. Bill Cooper. He was writing into the bulletin board saying he'd worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence and seen this incredible amount of top secret material and could vouch for, word for word, 50% of what I said. 50% I thought to myself, well that's not bad. I gave him my phone number, told him to call, which he did pretty much right away. A few days later he was at my house ringing the doorbell. And so from 1988 to 1990, Bill Cooper and John Lear spend a whole bunch of time together, which is around the same time Bill Cooper would have been compiling the work that became Behold a Pale Horse. Here's another quote from John Lear about Bill Cooper. I liked him from the beginning. He was smart, had a good sense of humor, an amazing memory. He could also drink me under the table, which wasn't so easy to do back then. When I saw him put away a fifth of scotch before lunchtime, I knew he was my kind of guy. End quote. So if you're a fundamentalist believer in the book Behold a Pale Horse, I would invite you to let this last section of the podcast give you a little pause. This is a former... CIA man intervening in the life of someone who had already been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, who had a serious drinking problem, and he shows up in Bill Cooper's life with this fantastical tale of aliens striking up business deals with Dwight Eisenhower. But hey, he just flew for the CIA. I'm sure it's all just coincidences and nothing more. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers.
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So anyway, the Lear hypothesis basically took the Majestic 12 theory that started with that mysterious roll of film and added an extra layer to it. That being that Eisenhower struck a deal with the aliens that the Truman Memo told him about. By the time Cooper and Lear started hanging out, Bill Cooper was already deep into writing his own newer version of the Majestic 12 slash Lear hypothesis. His version, which appears in a modified form in Behold a Pale Horse, is called The Secret Government, The Origin, Identity, and Purpose of MJ-12. And it adds a whole bunch of new and exciting details to the Lear hypothesis, most of them drawn from his memories of those documents he claims to have seen all those years ago in his Navy boss's office. Don't worry, he recovered them through hypnosis. And in his version of the story, there's more downed alien crafts, there's more recovered aliens, and for the first time, human body parts are alleged to have been found on one of the downed alien aircraft. He also added some new technology to the list of items we are alleged to have received from the aliens, including a particle beam weapon and machinery for cloning and synthetic genetic duplication of humans. Sounds cool. Cooper was so convinced that his memories of these files were correct and accurate that he made 535 copies of everything he knew about aliens and sent it to every member of the U.S. House and Senate. It cost him $27,000 in 1989 money, and almost certainly got him on every government watch list imaginable immediately. Among the stuff he sent them was The Species Classified, a rundown of the various traits of nine different alien races, including the Zeta Reticuli, Greys, Small, Orion Greys, Tall, the Draco Mothmen, the Daros Taros, and more. His mailing also included an offer to undergo hypnotic regression therapy to prove he wasn't lying. After all, that's how he remembered all this stuff anyway. And then that's when it happened. At the 1989 Symposium of the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, a guy named William Moore, one of the originators of the Majestic 12 theory, tearfully confessed that he'd colluded with none other than Richard Doty to spread false information to UFO researchers, including a guy named Paul Benowitz, an avid ufologist who built a high-powered antenna on the roof of his New Mexico home to pick up alien transmissions. And apparently shit like that might work, because the government was so concerned about this, they sent William Moore and Richard Doty out to Paul Benowitz to give him fake information that they could use to discredit him later, on the off chance he actually heard something real by setting up that high-powered antenna. This is an actual quote from William Moore at that MUFON conference. What we are hearing about malevolent aliens, underground bases, and secret treaties between the aliens and the U.S. government has its roots in the Benowitz affair. Mm, end quote. Bill Cooper was livid when he heard this. He confronted John Lear to find out who he was really working for. But eventually he calmed down and decided that while the MJ-12 documents were for sure fake, 
And William Moore was definitely a liar. His memories of those files he saw in Admiral Clary's office were still very real. Even if a huge chunk of them pertained to a thing he now accepted was not real. Pretty confusing, huh? But despite having the basis of his secret government theory pulled right out from underneath him, Bill Cooper went out and read that secret government theory to the assembled crowd at MUFON anyway. And he powered on with his career as a man committed to telling the truth as best he could remember it under hypnosis. In fact, not long after that first MUFON speech, he added yet another layer to the Lear hypothesis. In Lear's version, a high-ranking Edward Air Force Base official is quoted as saying, the aliens have a device that has recorded all of Earth's history and can display it in the form of a hologram. End quote. Bill Cooper added to this bit of lore with a claim that the aliens showed Majestic 12 members a hologram of the actual crucifixion of Christ, which they had filmed with a time-traveling camera called a chronovisor. Eventually, as you might expect, the UFO community grew suspicious of Bill Cooper and John Lear both. And that includes Jim Spicer, the founder of the Paranet site, where both men first made their name in the ufology field. Spicer feared his site, quote, was becoming a home for unwed paranoids, end quote, and said he couldn't tell whether Cooper was engaging in fantasy role-playing or something more sinister. And about John Lear, he said this, quote, Lear is known to have been a CIA operative, end quote. And you know what? That's all the quote you need. I don't know what else there is to say about a person like John Lear in a situation like this, other than he's CIA. All you really need to know. There was also Don Ecker, who was then research director for UFO Magazine, the outlet that broke the Majestic 12 story initially. Ecker said Cooper was, quote, one of the most repellent human beings I had ever had the misfortune to meet during my entire life. You know what? That's harsh. That is pretty harsh. But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter that the UFO community turned on Bill Cooper because, conveniently enough, by around 1989, he didn't even believe UFOs were real anymore. He claims he started suspecting flying saucers didn't come from space that same year, when a scientist friend visited him at his hotel carrying, quote, a mysterious briefcase, end quote, and that when he opened it, a miniature flying saucer rose out of it under its own power, hovered briefly, and then vanished from sight, end quote. The scientist friend told him that the technology he was seeing was a man-made device that came about as a result of Nazi anti-gravity technology brought to the USA by the Third Reich as part of Operation Paperclip. So there's that. But Cooper claimed the thing that really changed his mind about aliens was discovering a 1917 speech given by psychologist and educator John Dewey. Specifically, it was the opening line that struck Cooper as odd. Here goes. Someone remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet. In the face of such an alien enemy, people would respond with a sense of their unity of interest and purpose. So I guess that was the opening two lines. Whatever the case, when Bill Cooper read that, he said he nearly fell out of his chair. It hit him like a sledgehammer right between the eyes. And in the months and years following this revelation, Bill Cooper did his best to own up to his mistake. Here's a quote he told an audience at a convention some fucking where. For many years, I sincerely believed that an extraterrestrial threat existed and that it was the most important driving force behind world events. I was wrong, and for that, I most deeply and humbly apologize. End quote. Now, what's interesting is 
whether he believed aliens were real or not, there's no denying that without aliens and UFOs, Behold a Pale Horse, the book that made Milton William Cooper famous, never would have been published. The book was published by Melody Orion Swanson, owner of Light Technology Publishing, which she describes as, quote, a metaphysical book publisher. She heard about the book from a friend, a spiritualist named Janet McClure, and Janet heard about it from an alien? Here's a quote from Melody Swanson that I'm sure will require no explanation. This comes from the book Pale Horse Rider, by the way. Janet was a founder of the Tibetan Foundation who primarily channeled Viwamus. And again, I'm sure I don't need to tell any of you that Viwamus is an entity who represents the holographic higher self aspect of Sanat Kumara, son of Lord Krishna and head of the spiritual hierarchy of Shambhala. I assume you were all mouthing those words with me by the time I got to the end. Here's another quote. Janet told me that she had a session with Viwamus and he was very concerned how much human beings were being controlled and manipulated. Viwamis was aware that Bill had written Behold a Pale Horse. He told Janet that it wasn't the greatest book in the world, but it would help people wake up to the danger. That's why I decided to publish it. End quote. Worth noting, at least in the book Pale Horse Rider, Melody says she didn't read the book before publishing it. And she still never read the book all these years later. What's ironic about Behold a Pale Horse getting published on the suggestion of a channeled alien named Viwamus is that Bill Cooper hated channelers. Apparently, there are two sides to the alien debate, at least there were at the time, the light side and the dark side. On the light side are the channelers, the people who think if you just meditate and focus hard enough, aliens will inevitably show up and be nice to you. And then there's the dark side, which assumes all aliens are monsters bent on enslaving the planet. Bill Cooper was very much on the dark side of the argument, but it was apparently the suggestion of a light side alien that made him famous. Cooper hated those light side aliens so much, he threatened to sue one of them once. The alien in question was Georgos Saris Hatton, a nine foot tall, quote, space brother, end quote, who presented himself as, another quote, the commander-in-chief Earth Project Transition Pleiades Sector Flight Command, end quote. Hatton spoke through a channel named Doris Ecker, a 70-year-old grandmother from Tehachapi, California, and when he did, he called Cooper a horrendous tool who needed to realize that he does not control the truth. And Bill Cooper threatened to sue this alien who was channeling his voice through a 70-year-old woman. And after he threatened to sue, that alien responded by offering to put Cooper, quote, under the protections of the white hats of the cosmos to stand forth in the test and discernment of the truth from Earth speakers, end quote. Fucking what? Whatever that meant, Cooper wasn't impressed and threatened to take his proposed lawsuit against an alien that lived inside the head of a 70-year-old woman all the way to the Supreme Court. Here's a quote. This channeling is complete bullshit, and I'm going to put a stop to it. In the end, Melody Swanson still credits that other, less controversial, channeled alien, Viwamis, with all the success of Behold a Pale Horse. Here's a quote. He said Bill's book would open people's eyes. He turned out to be right about that. You know what? You sure were right about that, Viwamus, even if I'm not sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. And speaking of that book that opened everyone's eyes, on the next episode, we are going to do a deep, deep dive into the book itself, Behold a Pale Horse. After that, 
I think we'll have an episode about Bill Cooper's life and career after Behold a Pale Horse, which is somehow wilder than his book that included one entire chapter that was just the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It somehow gets crazier after that. But in between this and that, we're going to talk about the book, Behold a Pale Horse. That'll be the next episode. Hey, read it ahead of time if you want. It's a frustrating book. About 70 pages of it are Bill Cooper's writing, and the rest is just him including documents in their entirety. Massive documents, sometimes 50, 60 page documents that he says confirm the points he's making in the book. So yeah, next episode, we're going to dig into that book and see if those points still hold up all these years later. See if they're still as influential on my impressionable young mind as they were on my even more impressionable young mind when I was in my 20s. Until then, I think I'm going to get out of here. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam Todd Brown. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Conspirapops. And that's all. This is a bonus episode. You don't have to do anything else. You're doing everything I need you to do. I love you so much. All right, let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs> <laughs>